0: Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, everybody. Happy Saturday morning. Bright and early. I hope you all are doing very well. Welcome to episode 6 of Sheep Thrills. Um this is basically our like a mid-season finale um because it is midterms. I've actually maybe it's not our mid-season finale, maybe technically next week is our mid-season finale, but regardless, we are we're kind of we're kind of right in the middle of things here. Um and so, given all of that, also, I always forget to do this because I just start talking and then I kind of forget that, like, I should probably introduce myself. This is Emily Lamb. You're listening to Sheep Thrills, WRGW. Um, I hope you all are doing well on this on this lovely Saturday morning. Um, kind of enjoying, again, I talked about last week this, like, whiplash with the weather. It's, it was so cold um, the last couple of days, but then so warm in the middle of the week. But this is not a weather show. We're going to talk about some politics stuff. So, like I said, kind of right there in the middle, middle of this, in the semester, middle of the season, kind of a perfect time for us to stop, do a little bit of recalibrating regarding where we are um, with politics right now and where we're going. Um, Kind of just a good time to look around, see what's going on. A perfect way to do this, right, is to review where the president thinks thinks we are and where the president thinks we're going. Um, So as I'm sure you all know, as I've mentioned several times the past couple episodes, this past Tuesday was Joe Biden's first official State of the Union address, um, which he, again, gave Tuesday night, 9 p.m., which is past my bedtime, but we won't get into that. Um, So this was... I, I made a joke that this was the, the poli-sci major Super Bowl. My dad was like, well, no, that's election day. I think this is actually the the um poly sci major Final Four. So, given that it's March, we're going to talk about the poli-sci major Final Four today. Um, if you didn't completely follow my live tweet, which, by the way, was super interesting and fun. And if I ever am actually on the floor for the State of the Union, I will be live tweeting. And it'll be really interesting. So, stay following me, guys, because... One of these days, it'll be like, "Wow, that's Emily Lamb live tweeting from the floor of the House." But anyway, I kind of did like the the, the main takeaways, so um, that was very fun. Um, it was also kind of probably boring. Probably nobody no nobody except for my parents engaged with it, but that's that's okay. Um, but anyway, I'm going to take you through some some of the biggest takeaways from the evening, the overall fallout, kind of all those things, and then at the end of the show, we're going to take a look at. Some of the different things we have coming down the line for the second part of the semester, just generally things that we need to be watching out for, um, different things that are just going to be important for us to watch and pay attention to because they're going to, you know, be significant as we finish out the semester, go into the summer, um, and all of that kind of stuff. So let's just jump right into it. The State of the Union, um, it was, you know, again, as I said, it was Biden's first official State of the Union because last year... Um because of covid they they didn't end up having one, and they, he just kind of did a random speech um so this is the first time that Biden has been able to address both branches of Congress together. um most people were there. there was a handful of Republicans who decided not to come, such as one marco Rubio um and because I think the the rules were that you had to um either wear a mask or get tested, like, right before, um, the State of the Union, regardless of your vaccination status, and, um, Marco Rubio said, I don't have time to get tested, so I'm just not gonna go, which was, like, just a very subtle dig at Biden, but, like, who cares? Nobody was really missing Marco Rubio. Um, does anyone ever miss Marco Rubio in places where he may or may not should be? But anyway, regardless. Um, so yeah, there were a handful of Republicans who didn't come just kind of out of protest. Or just, you know, not, maybe not necessarily out of protest, but, you know, just didn't, did not feel the need to show up, which is interesting. And the, I think the, the State of the Union had three main goals. The overarching goal beyond everything was to kind of just redeem the Biden presidency, to kind of shove it kind of in a, in a, in a better direction, put it on the right track for the first time, uh, basically since like the first months of the, of the presidency. Things have been spiraling slightly, slightly out of control for the Biden administration over the past couple months, as you've seen and heard from me kind of talking about it, and I'm sure you're like reading the news yourself. Um, So this was, you know, this was this was his one big attempt to stand up in front of the American people and give a defense of his domestic policy, of his foreign policy, and just generally try to recruit any kind of support that he can get at this point, um, so that was, that was clearly the overarching goal. Um, and I'm going to talk more about that kind of towards the end of the episode. But I think the three, again, the three main goals for this were, one, to appeal to moderates. That was the entire speech was talking about the things that appeal to kind of like moderate Democrats and people who have been kind of pulling away from him. Um, there's been, he, he was, his clear goal was rallying some bipartisanship around a couple of domestic issues, but mainly around um, Ukraine and international affairs. He clearly wanted to use that as kind of like a stepping off point to say, we're all in this together. We need to kind of come together. We need to be one body. We need to be unified, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then third, um, and potentially not, maybe maybe not most importantly, because what's happening in Ukraine is pretty important. Um, but I think he his other main goal was to salvage his domestic agenda in any way possible. As we've talked about ad nauseum in the past, Build Back Better is all but dead, unfortunately. Um, and so now this was Biden's opportunity to officially kind of phase out that lingo um, and just to kind of put the ideas forward instead of the branding. Um, so kind of getting people to forget about what Build Back Better was at all and just kind of moving right right into the actual policy positions, right? What are we, What when we're talking about Build Back Better, what are we actually talking about? Uh, so we will we will get into more on that, more on all three of these things, throughout the episode. So, first of all, what did he say? Um, he spent 11 minutes talking about the Ukraine, out of a like a like a 65 70 minute speech. I want to say I don't have that in front of me for sure, but I feel like he. Well, you know what? I could probably tell you when was the last tweet I tweeted. Yeah, I I, I my last live tweet was at 10 11. So means he spoke spoke for about about 55, 60 minutes. Um, So he spoke for Ukraine for a very good chunk of that. And then 11 minutes of that speech means that he like they wrote that those 11 minutes within the last week and probably within the last few days because they've been uh, they introduced a lot of new policy, which is very interesting to me that they they, you know, that as we go as we go throughout the kind of this overview that I'm doing, I'm gonna bring up a lot of things that Biden didn't talk about, um, but I think it's important to remember that he had to cut some stuff because they've been working on this speech since the summer, um, and so they've been, you know, they've been laying out these policy priorities. They've been laying out this agenda for months and months and months, and this kind of catastrophe happened. They had to figure out exactly what their priorities are. So while I'm not saying that, what, you know, Biden didn't Biden not talking about things doesn't mean he doesn't care about them, but it does indicate that they're lower down on the priority list. So, whatever. So, everything with Ukraine, um, he introduced a whole new slew of sanctions, um, and he kind of just tried to show people that sanctions are a legitimate alternative to military intervention. And I kind of want to go, I talked about this a little bit last week when I was doing my whole Ukraine overview, but I think that the, the dynamics have changed a lot in the last week. So I want to spend this time talking about the current fights happening around, or at least within the United States, regarding Ukraine, and then kind of talk about how the Biden administration is addressing them. So, first of all, the the, the first kind of, I guess, maybe largest significance fight regarding, like, human life uh, is NATO involvement and whether or not we should be involving NATO. We've talked about this a lot, but again, the three sides are, you know, one- Yes, we need to have NATO. We need to have American troops be involved. It's our responsibility as Americans. We, If we believe in democracy, we need to intervene kind of along those lines. Um, that's kind of a, a fairly obvious argument. Um, a lot of people have been invoking World War II, um, and they've been saying, you know, we didn't intervene fast enough. And, and look what happened in the Holocaust. Look what, look how much life was lost there. Um, so that, that's like an important um Kind of uh, emotional plea that 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 the Ukrainian people have been using, um, and that a lot of people in the United States have been using as well, um, just trying to gain gain some support from from the government. So anyway, it's just like it's just an interesting um, thing that they're they're trying to show. Hey, look, this looks like history repeating itself. Are you going to intervene? Are you going to sit there and watch it all happen again? Um, the second fight, the second side of this fight is that we shouldn't intervene because it isn't our role and it's going to mess with gas prices and why should we be worried about the Ukraine and blah, blah, blah. The the side of isolationism is never a good one, frankly, in my opinion. As we all know, this show is all my opinion and all my nonsense. Um, So... I, I, just, I just think that intervention, we, we talk, I talked about this last week as well, intervention is no, non-intervention at all. Complete isolation is silly and kind of immature, but we, whatever, we don't have time to get into all of that. Um, but then the third side of the fight is that we shouldn't intervene because we'll escalate the situation and we need to, you know, support as much we, as we can from the sidelines. But as soon as we get militarily involved, it's going to start World War III and we just can't um, kind of let that happen. And I feel like that's where a lot of politicians are standing at the moment, especially, um, you know, in the federal government. And I'm sure that's where the Biden administration stands, too, is that if they get involved, like this is also why, you know, a couple weeks ago when he told all of the um, all Americans living in Ukraine, hey, get home right now. Like if you stay in Ukraine and something happens, like we cannot come in and help you because he knew that if they. If Russian and American troops started engaging in gunfire, like that's the ball game, like nuclear war, like this is it. Um, so, you know, th- th- those are kind of the, like the three different distinctions. And, and again, that's where Biden stands. It's just saying we can't escalate the situation. We need to do as much as we can from the sidelines. We need to, you know, invest in sanctions and do all of this stuff. Um, and we're only going to, in, in, you know, get involved militarily under dire circumstances, under, you know, the most, the most extreme circumstances. And I think that's valid, to be honest. Um, the second argument, which is kind of connected to the, the, the second side of the first argument, very clear, um, is an argument, argument around energy independence that I talked about a little bit last week. But again, it's ramped up a lot in the last week. Um, so they're basically the United States buys Russian oil, basically. Um, and so, and I'm not sure of all the details of this. Frankly, I did not do enough research on it. I will, I will admit. But I'm a, what I'm aware of is that under the Trump administration, we had the Keystone Pipeline, and that meant that we were basically energy independent. So we were not buying oil from from external sources. But now the Keystone Pipeline is closed, so we've gone back to buying oil from places like Russia. Um, And so the question is, do we reopen the Keystone Pipeline so that we can be energy independent again? Um, Or do we, you know, continue to buy oil from Russia while we kind of invest in renewable energy within the United States? The two camps are the one that cares about gas prices and nothing else. And they're saying, you know, figure it out. I don't, I can't, my gas can't be $10 a gallon, which is a lot. That's not, you know, it's not going to get to that point, I don't think. But anyway... Um, and then the other camp is that they're genuinely concerned that buying oil from Russia is basically helping to fund the war in Ukraine. Um, and it's just like, there's a very interest from what I've read, there's a very interesting kind of cognitive dissonance between, with people who who kind of are so mad about, this is, and I, like, this is, it, it's it's a little bit of like mental gymnastics, I think. How they, how some people are getting here, but they're saying the green. Well, I mean, it's maybe not that aggressive, mental gymnastics wise. But anyway, they're saying that the the green New Deal, which is not an implemented policy, um, is to blame for the fact that we're buying oil from Russia and then funding the war in Ukraine. Um, however, if you want us to be energy independent, you should be wanting us to re, uh, you know, invest in renewable energy. Like that's not a crazy thing. Should be investing in renewable energy so that we can, um, you know, be able to be able to to get around Russia and not be beholden to anybody there. But anyway, that's a long argument, and I have a lot of a lot more to to, to get into today. So I'm gonna kind of move on from it. But anyway, so he did spend a good good amount of time talking about Ukraine, talking about oil prices, talking about sanctions, um, and he knew that he was gonna get some good bipartisan support from it, which is probably why he talked for as long as he did for, you know, by basically a fifth of the speech. Um, you know, he spent a lot of time rallying around a common thing um, because the vast, vast majority of the United States government is currently vocally, vocally in support of Ukraine. Um, there's the crazy Republicans that we talked about last week that we're not going to get into, but there's a pocket that doesn't. But the, the the vast majority Republican Democrat Independent um, are very much in support of Ukraine whether or not they're in support of NATO involvement or you know buying Russian oil or blah 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 um so then he he announced a new set of sanctions he tried to kind of rally everybody around the idea that sanctions are a good thing they're actually going to have an re- impact on the Russian economy which they definitely are right now um, and more importantly the purpose of the state of the union beyond obviously speaking to the members is convincing the people that this is the right course of action and that was clearly what he was trying to do kind of putting some of this language into layperson terms trying to just prove to people i know that it seems like it's a it's like a slap on the wrist but this is going to have significant effects on the russian people um and you know they've been moving into more sanctions on putin specifically on Oligarch specifically. So I think they're just trying to prove, you know, military intervention is not the only possible alternative we have in this situation. So I think, you know, communication wise, it's so important with things like this, because what what the heck is a sanction? Like, what's a sanction? It's, a, you, know, you know, you need to be so explicit about, it. here's what sanctions are, here's what they're going to do, here's what they're doing now. Here's the logic behind it. I think laying out all of those steps, despite the fact that like maybe people are not going to listen, it's really important for the Biden administration to be laying out all those steps because it's just, you know, I acknowledge the fact that it seems like a slap on the wrist and that it seems like not as significant of a punishment as it could be on the outset. But you have to think about the fact that the, you know, the, the Putin regime is very much interested in the bottom line. So I, I, I just think that there there's an interesting communication strategy that's taking place around this. It's a complicated issue with a complicated solution, and it's not going to become any less complicated as we move forward. Um, but if the Biden administration is extremely explicit about how and why they're making the decisions they are, things will, I think, be a little bit more clear and he'll be able to get some more support on those things, which I think he tried to do with the State of the Union. Moving on from Ukraine, uh, he then kind of moved into the next 40 or so minutes of the speech were basically just a slew of different social issues, kind of bounced pretty quickly between things. Um, But again, his main goal with his section on, on domestic policy was breaking down the ideas of Build Back Better without saying Build Back Better once. And there's been some criticism of him for not saying build back better, and then there's you know this is also all from the left. There's been some criticism of him, uh, excuse me, it's early in the morning. There's been some criticism of him saying build not saying build back better, and there has been some support from the left of saying yeah you you acknowledge the fact that it's over and done, so now you can kind of move on to talking to, get to you know getting to the getting to the root of the policy, which again as I just said talking about Ukraine. It's so easy with policy to get so esoteric and get so weird. And I don't understand what Build Back Better is. I don't understand what the infrastructure bill is. I just want to know what it does and how it's going to affect me. And so I think that the the Biden administration got so wrapped up in the Build Back Better lingo that they forgot what was actually in the bill. Right. And I think that the people thus forgot what was in the bill. And so it didn't get the kind of support that it generally would because it you know it, it, it's good policy it's all good policies and so once Biden can pull out here are all of the things that you individually support let's get it done right so some and you know the, the other important thing is that a lot of these individual components maybe not all together uh, but there's some individual components that could definitely get some bipartisan support so he knows okay I pull it I pull the bill apart I get general broad appeal from the people for these certain policies I get some bipartisan support, um, and I also get the support of one Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, um, who does support a lot of these individual components. So what are some of those individual components that he talked about? Um, Lowering the price of insulin, uh, expanding childcare, which is very important to me, Um, lowering the price of prescription drugs, raising the minimum wage. Um, He actually did spend a good amount of time this was this uh, I, this was I think though the moment that fell the most flat for me, because he, I think he's right, but it just didn't come across in the right way. I think he was trying to do like a tough love thing. I just don't think it was. I, I this was this was the one moment that I was like, oh, yeah, you, uh, you didn't. You probably did need to go there, but maybe you should have done it in a different way. But he, basically talked about how companies instead of lowering wages should just like lower their operating costs. In order to make sure that they're paying their employees a living wage which was i i mean a tough pill to swallow but i mean he's right but you know i that 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 one particular moment you have to go look um that one particular moment felt just a little bit a little flat for me in terms of the overall effect um but then moving on he um also talked about funding the police which is like, you know, and every college democrat in the world like heaved in in the world. Every college democrat in the United States just heaved a heavy, heavy side. They were like, Oh, President Biden, you're doing such a good job. Um and of course he was he was looking for that bipartisan support on this kind of social funding issue. Um it was an appeal to moderates, it was you know, trying to show that he's you know, he is not beholden to the squad and AOC, blah blah blah. Um it's just it's just his way of kind of pushing back against a narrative that he is not in control of his own administration or he's not in control of his own policy agenda, which, like, if you've paid even an ounce of attention to politics over the past s- several years, you'll know that, like, he's he's very much in control of his own policy. He doesn't care what AOC says at all. I doubt he even has you know has had several several conversations with AOC in the past, you know, 18 months. But regardless, this was this is something that he wanted to include, and it, again, it is significant that he included this bit about funding the police over conversations about climate change um and student loan debt and things like that, which we'll get into in a bit. Um but he wanted he he was really searching for that bipartisan applause. He was really searching for ways that he could Show that he has support from across the aisle because he wanted that headline of President Biden, you know, stuns with large-scale bipartisan support throughout his, you know, state, his first State of the Union, because he's he built himself as a, he built himself as a bipartisan president, and so now he wants to kind of prove to everybody, look, I am bipartisan, and if that means kind of forcing <laughs> some Republicans to stand on certain issues, he'll do it. He will do it um and again he very briefly mentioned climate change whole slew of things he didn't talk about and i will i'll get into that in a bit um covid then of course was talked about a lot it was kind of the same conversation we've seen and heard done a million times there's there's really only so many things you can say about covid um and about the about about the policy so it's you know it was it was the covid spiel it was the covid spiel um although the one thing that was kind of interesting that I mentioned in my live tweet is that there was a, he did the, I feel like it was the inauguration, or maybe it was the acceptance speech. I don't know. But during one of his speeches, Biden said, you know, I know how hard it is to to be in the dining room and look at the empty chair that you have set up for somebody who's no longer there. Um. And he said a very similar line during the speech. And I was like, did he just like use the same line? And he ad-libbed it into the speech, like he added it on the fly. And the the line was, I know you're tired, frustrated, and exhausted. That doesn't even count. Uh, close to a million people who sit at a dining room table or kitchen table and look at an empty chair because they lost somebody. Um, so he did ad-lib that line, which I thought was interesting. Um, also, speaking of bipartisanship, um, there was, you know, he... he had some, he had some bit where he talked explicitly about bipartisanship, although that's what the whole speech was about, I would argue. That was the, that was the thesis of the speech. Um, but during, you know, during this, this thing about bipartisanship, a couple of Republicans stood up, but like broadly they didn't, which I think is hilarious that the Republicans were like, yes, bipartisanship, but only on our terms. As I've talked about in the past, actually, I'm not going to really get into it because it'll get me annoyed and shouty, and I have more to talk about today. Um, But honestly, Republicans are so funny with their claims of wanting bipartisanship when really they just want it their way. It's like, okay, move on. Get a hold of yourself. But anyway, um, moving on. The other one note that I wanted to mention, um, and this is for my friend Helen, who's from Ohio, Um, And she, we were talking about, we were talking about the State of the Union. She's like, yeah, I tuned in for a couple minutes and then he started talking about how Columbus, Ohio is going to be the new Silicon Valley. And I don't really know how he's going to pull that off because um, Columbus, Ohio does not have the infrastructure for that. And it made me laugh. And so we're going to talk about it. Um, So this was a part of the speech when he was talking about infrastructure. He was talking about, you know, reinvesting in innovation in the United States. And he announced that Intel was going to be building a $20 billion semiconductor mega site um, in, like, the area surrounding Columbus, Ohio. Um, And it's going to have up to eight factories and 10,000 new jobs. And they're all going to be high paying and all these kinds of things. And um, Helen was very funny because she said, like, Columbus can't handle the traffic of an entire new industry. And, like, you know, thousands of people, (laughs) like, moving into the city. Like, there's no public transportation at all um which gets us into the the part of the speech that made me scream infrastructure he says he goes it's not infrastructure week it's infrastructure decade and I literally like jumped out of my seat and my roommate was like what are you doing I was like you don't understand it's infrastructure decade I can talk about infrastructure every day for the rest of my life because it's infrastructure decade should I should I do that Should I just turn this show into a show where I just talk about trains every day? I think I should. Let me know what you think. I'm going to do it. But anyway, so, you know, I think it kind of goes hand in hand of we have we want to do all this innovation, but we can't do that innovation without the necessary infrastructure, without the necessary development that it's going to take to actually make sure that we're prepared for the kind of the kind of innovation, the kind of development that we want And of course, as soon as they start talking about infrastructure, the camera hard cuts over to Pete Buttigieg and his new haircut. He looks very dapper. I'm very proud of him. Um, But anyway, that whole conversation was kind of also just about bringing new industries into the Rust Belt, revitalizing different industries that were kind of decimated by 2008 and then just never recovered. Um, And also the CEO of Intel was there during the speech, which was kind of interesting because I always bring people. And I kind of, I, I don't know, I kind of feel like that was a weird person to bring to the state of the union. Like, usually it's just like normal people. And like, you know, they brought this little kid out to talk about insulin and, and all this kind of stuff. But it's just like the CEO of Intel. I'm like, all right, good for you, bud. I'm happy for you. Mm, whatever. Um, But anyway, moving along. That is all that is what he said, at least in part, there was there was a lot of things that he said that obviously I'm not going to get into the whole thing because I don't think you want to hear me just like rehashing the entire speech. Um, But more importantly than what he did say, what didn't he say and why? So some of the major things that people picked up on that he did not talk about, climate change, um, very, very briefly talked about it. Um, Although, you know, talking about energy independence, I think it definitely should have been a, a larger part of the speech. He also did not talk about immigration he didn't talk about the border at all um and considering kind of how much there i mean of course there's always been the conversation of why are we worrying about the russian ukrainian border when we should be worrying about our own southern border it's a nonsense argument but it is an argument that that people have been have been saying so it's just it's interesting that that was uh, an omission did not talk about gun control at all did not talk about abortion at all all of these very big-ticket Democratic items that get Democrats excited. Um, and so, of course, instead of talking about these big-ticket items that get Democrats excited, he talked about funding the police. Something that, even if you support funding the police, is not going to get you really, really excited because you know that it's going to kind of stoke divisions within your own party. And so Democrats from kind of, all, in, in my view, kind of all across the the political spectrum are... Um, kind of mad about what about some of these omissions um and and again I, I think of course he had to cut things he spent a fifth of the speech talking about Ukraine so something had to give um and I'm sure that he you know he because the speech can only be so long you can only hold the attention of the American people for so long and he knew that um and so it was just a matter of how much can I say in this short amount of time how much can I actually get across? And at some point, like what's, what doesn't matter for me to say? Um, and I think everybody knows Biden's position on gun control and on climate change and on, uh, no, maybe not. No, I'm I'm taking that back. People know his opinions on gun control and on abortion. That's it's clear. That's been hashed out. There's it's, it's one of the Democratic-Republican main arguments, both of them, like, there's just, there's nothing else that, that can be done. There's nothing else that can be rehashed out on those two topics. Um, climate change and immigration, though, kind of big things to ignore. Um, right, we've done the song and dance about gun control, but immigration is, like, almost too controversial to talk about because uh, it requires its own, probably, ten-minute segment. And so while you could do a quick kind of two minute snappy conversation about um, infrastructure decade and about, uh, you know, decreasing the price of insulin, you kind of can't do a two minute touch and go kind of thing about immigration because he knows that he's going to get in trouble about not addressing certain things. Um, So there's only, you know, there's only so much so much time. And if he can't do the issue justice, he's not going to bring it up in the first place. Was that the right decision? I don't know, but the 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 calculus is there of if I can't I don't have time to spend seven minutes talking about immigration so we're just cutting it um and you know the the domestic policy section did feel very choppy and it felt very um very much him just like jumping from thing to thing because he had so much to talk about in such a short amount of time that I think if he threw like a super hot button issue like immigration in there it would have set people off, like uh, across the political spectrum, it would have set them off. Um, He also knows that he's extremely unpopular on the issue of immigration. So he's gonna bring up issues that he's more popular with, bring up issues that he has more, um, he has more, you know, potential for success. Um, Sorry, I'm just, ah. Anyway, I just tried to roll the chair and I got stuck. more potential for success legislatively to actually get things done with issues that are part of his domestic agenda rather than talking about immigration um climate change him not bringing up is nonsense he should have talked about it for two minutes um but then again there's there's the whole conversation about energy independence that's going on right now and those those that that um anger and that energy is so heightened right now that i think again he thought I'm not going to make anybody happy talking about climate change because I'm not going to be liberal enough for the for the leftists. I'm not going to be conservative enough for the conservatives. The moderates are whatever; they'll follow me regardless of what my my climate change policy is. I'm just going to ignore it, because um, again, this was not a speech to appeal to the left. This was an appeal. This, this speech was an appeal to the center, and I I understand where activists are coming from. I really, really am because it's, you know, when the the whole point of this, one of the whole points I keep, I I think I've said that this, the whole point of the state of the union, like six times, there's a lot of different points to the state of the union. But anyway, one of, one of the main points of the state of the union is laying out the president's policy agenda and laying out what the president thinks that the main priorities for the next kind of fiscal year should be. Um, And so... For activists who have been trying so hard to get um, Biden to to recognize specifically climate change immigration, all those things, to not even get a, a cursory mention in the State of the Union is important because it's it's a it's a sim it's, a, it's a, as I said earlier it's a symbolic thing that these are the issues on the top of the chopping chopping block. These are the issues that the Biden administration cares about the least that they feel the least need to fight for. Um, whether for political reasons or for strategy reasons or policy reasons, whatever it is, these are the issues that are on the bottom of the list. These are the issues that the Biden administration feels that they can still be successful if they don't address them. If they have a limited amount of, much like, much like Biden has a limited amount of time in the speech to talk about certain things. He has a limited amount of time within his presidency to actually get any kind of tangible change, any kind of tangible policy done. So, this is this is these are what he this is the, these are the things that he wants, and some activists are not happy that climate change specifically, isn't on that list. Also, student loan debt not on that list. Um, I don't think he mentioned it at all, which has been a major major sticking point for a lot of people across the political political spectrum. So, um, yeah, people people are people are somewhat displeased regarding that as well. Although I, you know, didn't didn't spend that much time getting into it um, in this episode. But anyway, what did people say? What was the fallout from the speech? So as I've just mentioned, um, leftists are mad that he didn't talk enough about these kinds of social issues that they care about. Republicans are angry because there's a Democrat in the presidency. And so they're just kind of perpetually angry, although that is the way that American politics works. So I will not say that Democrats weren't just angry for four years under Trump, we were, but anyway, mm. um, so, but, you know, kind of specifically in terms of the, of the Republican response, they had Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa give the official Republican response, um, so this is kind of, you know, this is being, being the official responder for a major political party is a pretty major role, um, it's It gets you very high profile, you get in a lot of news articles, it's just very much, um, you know, you're kind of front and center for, like, an hour, which is pretty good, considering, like, the attention span of the American voter, uh, that, that one hour can, can do good things. So anyway, um, they kind of set her up as, like, the populist icon, you know, battling against the, the, the Trump regime, and I think, like, choosing the state of Iowa, which is... You know, you know the vibes of Iowa. I don't need to get into it, um, but they kind of, you know, they kind of set her up as this symbol of of populism, fighting against Biden, and that was kind of the main goal. And obviously, they're they they when when you promote somebody, especially you know, because I feel like it's usually a senator or a, House, a member of the House of Representatives, so it's it's interesting that they pulled from a state government, kind of trying to show that there's there's other people. In the Republican Party that are not Donald Trump, although we'll see how long that lasts. Because I think I read that um, Mitch McConnell chose who was going to um, kind of give that address. So it was interesting. That, 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 that's a kind of an interesting component of it, though I'm not sure if I'm right about it, so I'm not going to continue to talk about it. Um, but anyway, the main takeaways from um, Governor Reynolds' response, again, just like generally a populist appeal. She called, the, uh, like, our current state of affairs an unwanted remake of that 70s show, uh, which is actually, side note, funny that she said that because they are they are rebooting that 70s show. So maybe it all just com- maybe this was just a pitch, maybe this was, like, a subtle ad for the new reboot of that 70s show that's coming out soon. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if Kim Reynolds even knows that they're making that 90s show. Regardless. Um, so she's saying, yeah, it's an unwanted remake of that 70 show complete with quote runaway inflation, rampant, c- rampant crime, and a rampaging Soviet army. So clearly trying to imbue the American public with a lot of calm, being very rational with her thoughts, <laughs> just not trying to be intense at all. Not at all. Kim Reynolds, um, but regardless, we, we knew that that was the response, that they were going to harp a lot on inflation um, and talk a lot about those economic issues. Regardless of the fact that there has been economic growth, there's no kind of denying the fact um, that inflation is a major problem right now. And so, of course, if you spend that much time talking about it, you draw attention to that instead of, the, you know, the, the various good things that the Biden administration talked about. You can you can accrue a lot of support and a lot of kind of rallying around the party in that sense. Um The other kind of major thing that I want to talk about in terms of the response was her characterizing the revolt against masking and online learning as a, quote, pro-parent, pro-family revolution. And I need you to know that in my notes next to that point, I just wrote, shut up. Shut up! Okay, look, I've talked about this so many times that, like, I really can't get into it. But, like, pro-parent, pro-family. How about pro-child? Where does the child fit into any of this calculus ever? I would just seriously like to see somebody make an argument about education that does not put the parents first. The parents, obviously parents have to do with their child's education. But the person receiving the education, the child, like that should be the center point. That should be the center focus of all education policy. There should be zero conversations about how parents feel like they're trodden upon and don't have choices in their child's education. Like, give the child agency, give the child choice. Like, it's just, it's insanity to me how little, um, like, education policy focuses on the child and her characterizing it as a pro-parent revolution first. Pro-child, put the child front and center in this education policy or you're not being genuine. And I will, ugh, makes me so mad. And school is not, because once again, school is not about parents. School is about children. And also, tangential, but directly related also, not tangential at all, you know, pro-family. It's just a clear, clear, like, homophobic dog whistle. Um, and especially considering the, the couple of bills that I talked about last week, this, like, newfound resurgence in, like, legislated homophobia um, and legislated transphobia... It's just so interesting and horrifying how much this like pro, like again, this like pro quote unquote pro family, um, pro one very specific kind of nuclear family um, conversation has become. And I think it's directly related to all the conversations about critical race theory and all these conversations about education that we've been having over the past year. Um, And it bothers me as a person who spent eighteen years in public education and now two years at you know in a university. I would just for one one moment in my life like to see policymakers talk about children before they talk about parents. and to maybe ask children what they think. Maybe maybe you know, bring them into the narrative. Stop asking parents what they think about these things. Ask the people who are actually receiving the education. And not to mention, once again, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I'm sorry that I'm I'm being a little, um <laughs> like, off the wall right now, but people go to school to be educators. They get degrees to be educators. Like, what? Anyway. All right, we're going to have to move on from this, because I am getting heated. But anyway. Again, as I said, just in general, trying to present a very, like, everyman populist front, Um, And again, very differently from, I think, the way that the Republican Party is currently presenting itself. I don't think that they're being very populist at all, Um, but they're trying to maybe get back to their roots in an official capacity. Although we'll see what happens when Donald Trump makes his somewhat inevitable reappearance, although I am going to go ahead and knock on wood. Um, So that's that. Overall, the State of the Union is a hard thing to do it's a really hard thing to do well I think that Biden overall did a fairly good job I think that he did a I think the speech itself was engaging it was interesting um it didn't feel like he was slogging on for more than an hour um I also think just like in general performance wise like grant him some grace there was some there was a moment where it sounded like he said Iranian when he was trying to say Ukrainian but like you get up there and try to save your presidency in an hour and then, you know, try not to make a single mistake. You know, it's like, OK, you know, mistakes are going to happen. He's going to flub a couple lines. It's going to be a little bit awkward, but it happens. You're never like unless unless you're, um, you know, Josiah Bartlett, you're not going to never make a mistake in terms of in terms of your actual speaking um, in terms of content. I think it's kind of clear what I think. I think he tried just to, a little bit too hard to appeal to the middle ground. Um, I just think he was kind of just looking a, a lot of the speech. Obviously, the, the State of the Union is a very choreographed song and dance. Um, but he very, you know, he very clearly was looking for, as I ever mentioned earlier, he was looking for the most amount of bipartisan applauses as he could get, and he, you know, formed his speech around that. And I kind of wish that he didn't do that. I under I understand why he did, but like in a fictional world where he is able to kind of say what he say what he wants and say what he means, I don't think he would have spent as much time seeking that bipartisan applause. Uh, and and kind of, I I just wish he spent more time talking about those substantive. And again, like I know that it's not good politics. But this is just my own personal preferences i know that it's not good politics um but i wish he spent a little bit more time appealing to those base issues talking about climate change talking about gun control kind of proving to the democratic party i am a representative of you and of your beliefs and again i i know i understand that that is not the the greatest politics in the world um and that he's not going to be able to be successful if he does not continue to recruit the moderates if he doesn't continue to recruit the middle ground but that's just that's just what I think. Um and his approval rating did jump up to forty seven percent. Although we'll see how things actually fall once everything settles. Of course, around things like this, the the president always gets a bump. It's just like the the little bump that happens around the um presidential conventions that happen um before the, the general election. So there's there's always a little bit of bump that happens in polling there just because people kind of have those things fresh in their minds. But you know, we'll we'll um things will probably settle back out although we'll see how much he actually maintains uh and if he holds it. Look, Biden getting closer and closer to 50%. He just needs one more good thing to happen to him and he'll he'll kind of make it all the way up. Um and you know, this was this this was I think a redefining moment for his presidency and where it's going. Um he very much needed this speech to be successful in order to again prove prove to the people this is why I'm here, this is what I'm doing. Um and I, th- I think that he was able to do that. I think that he was very clearly able to articulate his positions. I think that his strategy around kind of deconstructing Build Back Better was a good one. Um, and so I think him, you know, his, him trying to re-kind of take control of the narrative again, push back against some of the nonsense, I think that that was a fairly a fairly effective strategy. He wanted to rally, rally the crowd. He wanted to appeal to moderates, and he wants to kind of come back from this, from this swinging. I, I feel like all things considered, he did a pretty good job um, and, and, you know in terms of him rewriting new policy stuff uh, within not that he was writing it, but in terms of you know the, the the speech writers writing all of this new stuff in such a short amount of time was pretty cool. Um, and I, I do think that this State of the Union is going to be remembered if not for anything miraculous happening during the speech. I think that it's historical context and significance it's going to be pretty important. I do think that people are going to say, oh, remember when the State of the Union was given in the middle of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and I think that it's, you know, it's going to be one of those things that's, um, that's going to be studied and it's going to be going to be looked at. Okay, a couple of tangential fun things before I move on from the State of the Union. Um, heckling. Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren, Lauren Boebert eh. um, started heckling, Joe Biden in the middle of him talking about, um, his son, Beau, which is like time and place, you know? However, here's my, here's my take. Don't heckle the president when he's talking about his dead son. But I also think that maybe we need to bring heckling into the United States government in general. I am a big fan of watching videos of British parliament and people just like fighting with each other. And I think that it might help us kind of uh, get rid of some tension if we're just able to yell at each other. I don't know. What do you guys think? Anyway, um. also, I will never get over having two women sitting behind the president during a speech. It's girl bossy, and I know it, but I love it. And I think that it's amazing that, um, you know, Madam Secretary and Madam Vice President, like, what? That's so amazing. And I just, you know... I I think that it's a it's a very profound. It, you know, I talk, I think I talked about this uh, during the inauguration, but I think that it's a very um, it's a very significant, it's a very poignant thing to me, myself, and I, and I love it in my heart. And then last but not least, the last thing I want to talk about is State of the Union fashion. Everyone was wearing little sunflowers for Ukraine, and everyone was wearing blue and yellow and had flags, and I just thought it was nice. Um, this kind of again, this like visual symbol. Of unity um, surrounding Ukraine so now with all of that being said we're gonna move on to some stuff that we have to look forward to for the next chunk of the semester do a little bit of a check-in where are we going what are we looking at number one the appropriations process is starting yes a new appropriations process hey remember when we like didn't have a new budget and we're just like hanging out we're starting a new budget altogether. Um, so now the appropriations process is starting, so there's gonna be a lot um, going on there from now throughout the summer as um, the appropriation subcommittees get their get their bills together for fiscal year 23, I want to say. Um, so anyway, we've got that to look forward to. We've got another budget process to talk about. So fun. Um, we also have midterm primaries coming up. Texas already had theirs last week, and if I have time, I'm going to talk about only one story from them. But regardless, we do have that coming down the line um, over the summer, so we're going to kind of start getting a lay of the land of um, anything interesting that's going to be happening with this primary season, any contested races happening in the midterms. uh, And I'll probably do a lay of the land kind of thing um, in the next couple weeks, just so we can get kind of a preview of what's going on um, with midterms. Um, plus we have new information coming out about the January sixth commission. I wanted to talk about this wanted to talk about that this week, but of course, talking about um talking about the State of the Union kind of took up all of this time, so we're gonna talk about it next week, but the January sixth commission did come out um with some potential recommendations for criminal charges against Donald Trump. It's something that i yeah, I'm definitely gonna to get to next week because it's very important talked about a couple weeks ago when I was talking about January 6 commission but um, it's it's very significant that there is an outcome there is a tangible outcome from the commission and so of course we will be talking a lot about that um, obviously new legislative priorities coming from the Senate uh, Biden very much teed up the the new legislative priorities with his speech and so we're definitely going to see some movement we're running again that like deconstructed build back better um, and then of course Potentially, most importantly, we have a confirmation process for a new SCOTUS justice also coming down the line. Um, So that'll definitely, hopefully that'll be kind of a quick, short and easy confirmation process. But it'll definitely um, be something that we're talking about because we've got that all coming up in the next few months to few weeks. Um, Things are all, again, starting to move and groove As always, things do not stop just because I have to take midterms, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, if the federal government could just, like, take a break for a week while I write all these papers, I'd really appreciate it just so that I don't miss anything. Um, But regardless. Um, So I do have a couple minutes left. So we're going to talk about the most wild story that happened. It's just so wild. So whatever. We love, like, political sex scandals are always fun. They're always dramatic. They're always, like, a little bit upsetting, like, just, like, in the core of your soul. But I think that this is potentially the most insane political sex scandal that I've ever seen. So, Representative Van Taylor of Texas had a primary, um, again, this past Tuesday, same night as the State of the Union. Um, And he, like, hours before voting started, it came out that he had an affair with the ex-wife of a like, American ISIS convert. And, like, she, like, what? Like, I don't, I don't even know, like, how, oh, I just literally fell over. I am very much clapped. Okay. Um, so the, this woman, she was, I don't, I actually don't remember this story specifically, but she and her husband, like, converted to Islam and then joined ISIS or, you know, other way around. And, like, the, the the husband was, like, a recruiter for ISIS within the United States. They got divorced, but she was still living in Texas, I think. And um, they had an affair. And, like, this Republican from Texas is having an affair with the former wife of an ISIS recruiter in the United States. Like, what are you doing? Like, what's going on here? Like, first of all, it's terrible that he had an affair, but also, like, he had to have known who she was. Anyway... Just such a truly wild story. So this came out, like, right before the election, and he still made it into the primary runoff, but he has officially said that he is not going to run for re-election um, because the story came out, and he is going to finish out the end of his term, but he's going to kind of pass pass the reins along to the next person in line. So that's a fun story. Van Taylor, what are you doing, buddy? What are you doing? Honestly, like just so many, so many good, crazy political sex scandals. Men need to get a hold of themselves. But anyway, with all of that being said, it is now coming to the end of my time. It was lovely to chat with you all this fine Saturday morning. I hope you have a great weekend. Um, if you're taking midterms, good luck with your midterms. Um, I hope that you all will, will grant me serenity as I try to get through my own midterms week. Um, but I hope you all have a great week. And I will talk to you in the next one.